Good morning, Piney Ridge Church. Welcome. I invite you to return to your seats. I'm Pastor Steve, one of three pastors here at Piney Ridge Church, and it's my privilege to proclaim the Word of God this morning. Let's quickly pray. Lord God, uh, we need you this morning. I need you. The people that are listening need you. Lord, we need you to take this word and to knit it into our hearts and to transform us, to change us, to make us more like you. Lord, as the song says, put within our desire the deep desire to know you more. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the end of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 13, and 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus never once promised that the Christian life would be easy. In fact, he promises the opposite. He says, in this world you will have Tribulation. Jesus says, follow me down that difficult path. Take up your cross and follow me toward that narrow gate that leads to eternal life. But we human beings, we are much more inclined to go on that easy road, aren't we? We're much more likely to go with the flow and just float right on in through that Big, enticing, and glamorous-looking gate. But lurking behind that gate is death. The writers of the New Testament epistles were determined to warn the people of God to keep watch over their souls and over the souls of others in the church, to be sure that they all remain on that difficult path that leads to the narrow gate that leads by faith to eternal life. And that's the heart of the warning passage from Hebrews 6 this morning that we'll look at. It's a warning to the church. The author wants you to persevere in your faith. He wants you to take stock of your soul and to continue pressing on in your walk with Christ. He wants you to, as Paul says in Philippians 2, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, keeping in mind that it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. He wants you to, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, confirm your calling and election. That's the purpose of this passage this morning. It's another call to Christians to persevere 
Now this passage is in the middle of a much larger section as we preach through Hebrews where the author is presenting to us Jesus Christ as the true and ultimate high priest. But in the midst of this argument that he's making, he takes a little detour. And last week Jason preached to us from Hebrews 5 and the end of 5 and the beginning of 6 that he rebukes those Christians who are still spiritual infants when they should have grown to adults by this time and encourages them to move on from those elementary, those foundational concepts, not discard them, but move on from them with those things as the foundation to a closer and deeper walk with God. This week, we'll see that the author warns them against apostasy. And then next week, Pastor Nathan will preach through uh, the next section in Hebrews where the author affirms in their faith and encourages them. But this morning, we'll examine the author's gracious warning to the church against apostasy, which is abandoning your faith or renouncing your faith. It's turning your back on God. It's the opposite of repentance, right? It's a difficult passage for a number of reasons. It's been misinterpreted. But it's also difficult because it's hard to hear. It's uncomfortable. But nonetheless, it's important for us to look at it. The author of Hebrews took the time to give this warning to this audience and through the power of the Holy Spirit, give this warning to us. And so we ought to heed it today. The primary takeaway I want you to have from this morning's passage is that followers of Christ must heed the warning against falling away from the living God and instead pursue him, persevere in their faith in order to receive his blessing. Followers of Christ must heed the warning against falling away. My prayer for you, I have prayed for you much this week. I prayed that you would receive this word as a gracious word from God, that you would heed the warning and that it would motivate you, that it would spur you on in your walk with Christ. And if you're not yet trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, my prayer is that you will hear within this warning a gracious invitation to receive God's free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We stand because we believe Scripture is the Word of God. And as we stand as, a, as just a, a token of not only our esteem for the Word, but our willingness to receive it. Hebrews 6, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted 
the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You may be seated. So if we look at the beginning of this passage in verse 4, we start with the word for, which means that it's linked to what came before. And we know from last week what came before was the rebuke of the immature Christians and the, the exhortation to move on. And then he says, for. For, if you've been enlightened, and so on, all those things it says in verses 4 and 5, and then fall away, it's impossible to be returned again to repentance, to be restored again to repentance. The word for tells us that this is to be a motivation to do what the author was telling you to do in last week's passage. Let's look more closely at the warning. First of all, let's look at that word impossible. The word impossible is meant to shock us, dare I say, to terrify us. I think a lot of us would like a nicer word there. It's difficult to restore them again to repentance. It's unlikely to restore them again to repentance. But no, this word impossible, the author in Hebrews uses it three other times in Hebrews, and here are the times. He says it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And he says without faith, it's impossible to please God. None of those words like difficult and unlikely fit there, right? All those things are impossible. They cannot be done, and that's what the author means here as well. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Well, what does he mean by, by repentance? It means nothing less than salvation. Look back at chapter 6, verse 1, where he's talking about we don't want to lay again the foundation of repentance. Now, look what he says. Repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That's salvation. Repenting, turning from your sin, turning from depending on anything else, especially thinking of these Hebrews who might be thinking of all of the things they do in their, their religion, turn from those as means of salvation and turn by faith toward God. Our passage says that if you do that, it's impossible to restore you again to salvation. Not impossible for God to forgive someone that comes to him 
seeking repentance truly from the heart, but rather what's impossible here is once you have been enlightened, once you have tasted and experienced the the gifts of the church, the blessings of the church, once you have fed on the Word of God and then turn away, God gives you over to a hardness of heart that you will never seek repentance. Even if you come with tears like Esau, God knows your heart, and God knows that you don't really want it. These people that fall away, they don't want to repent ever. That's what's impossible. And God gives them over to that hardness of heart just like he did Esau and just like he did Pharaoh. So the big question here is, who are these people? Who are they that fall away from God? Are they true followers of Christ? If you were to take this passage... Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, and pull it out of the Bible and just study it, you would be possibly led to believe that. I mean, just look at the things that it says in, in verses 4 and 5. It sounds like a believer to me. And there are a lot of denominations that have done that. But I maintain that if you look at this passage in the light of the rest of Scripture, that there is no way that the author is saying that those who are true followers of Christ can fall away. There are a lot of places I could go here. I decided to go to John 10, verses 25 through 30. John 10, 25 to 30, where we find some Jewish leaders saying to Jesus, if you're the Christ, just come out and say it. Tell us plainly. And Jesus says to them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. If you're not among Jesus' sheep, you will not believe. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Jesus' sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. Therefore, they don't fall away. And no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand. This is something else. We've already looked at one thing that the author of Hebrews says is impossible. Here's another impossible thing. It is impossible for a follower of Christ to fall away. So what about these people? Well, John addresses them in the book of 1 John, chapter 2. He tells us that those who fall away were never actually born again to begin with. Verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not 
they all are not of us. The fact that they don't persevere in their faith is a sign that they were never born again. The scary thing is, if we read those descriptors of these people before the fall away part, you could be describing me. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. What do we see? They were enlightened. Paul uses that word to, for people that have heard the gospel. And he uses it for people who saw who Jesus was from the Old Testament scriptures. It says they tasted the heavenly gift. They experienced the blessings of being in the church. They shared in the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say that he indwelt them. But they shared in the blessings of the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of the Word of God and experienced the powers of the age to come. When it says they tasted the goodness of God, I think of Jesus' parable of the sowers. When he explains it and he says, that rocky soil I was talking about, those are people who hear the Word of God and receive it with joy. But then persecutions come up because of the faith. And listen to what he says, and they fall away. Experience the powers of the age to come. I think of later in Matthew 7, from where we read earlier, where Jesus says to the people that were not saved, depart from me. And they say, the Lord... Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did all these miracles in your name. He says, no. I never knew you. But this warning is so terrifying because these people aren't just a bunch of obvious frauds who are making it all up, masquerading as Christians. These are people who, from all appearances, have been converted. Possibly part of the church, sharing in the blessings that God pours out on the church. And yet, and yet, they fall away. And by their falling away, we know that they were never truly saved to begin with. Why do these people fall away? How does it happen? Well, this warning passage, depending on how you count it, I count five warning passages in Hebrews. There are other warnings sprinkled in, but let's just talk about five the first one's in Hebrews 2.1. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. So their falling away may not just, most likely is not just a sudden thing, but it's a slow drift, like, Nate, like Jason talked about last week. And they don't pay attention to what they've 
heard and what they've read in Scripture. Hebrews 3.12, take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from God, the living God. These people didn't take stock of their own souls. They didn't pull the weeds, the things out of their hearts that are leading them away from God. Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, which starts like this. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. We need to be killing sin, don't we? And if you're not killing sin, if you're continuing to go and say, God, I'll, I'll change all this, but I'm not changing this, that's a problem. And the end of that warning passage goes like this. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of of the living God. And then there's another warning in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 14. It goes on for quite a few verses, talking about things like letting a root of bitterness grow up, talking about sexual immorality. All of it related is, is related by the author to Esau despising his birthright, despising the free gift of salvation that is available. Those are the ways that people fall away. And the application for the church is obvious. Pay attention. Pay attention to your own soul and pay attention to the souls of those around you. And for guidance on how to do that, let's take a look at the passage in 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. It says this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. I don't have time to go through this entire passage word by word, but just some things that we need to see here. First of all, verse 3 Whose power is it that helps us to grow in our walk with Christ? It is God's power. His divine power that grants to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And how does it come to us? Through the knowledge of Him who called us. How do we grow in that knowledge of Him? We read His Word. We gather together to hear the teaching of his word. We spend time with him in prayer. And we obey his commands, by which he has granted to us his, very, his precious and very great promises, said that, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine 
nature. Grow more and more into the image of Christ and escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. So you turn from your sin and you become more like Christ through God's divine power working through you and working through Scripture. Verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now listen, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear the language of advancing your faith there? Add to this, add this to this, and this to this. Supplement your faith. These things shouldn't just not be yours, but they should be increasing. And notice While he starts off saying it's his divine power, what does he tell us to do in verse 5? He tells us to make every effort, right? And so we are working hard, my favorite verse, one of my favorite verses, toiling and laboring with all his energy that he works mightily, powerfully in us. Verse 9, I'm not done. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Hmm, never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Paul's conclusion in all this is that we need to confirm our calling and election by working on these things, actively taking a part in in being sure that we are advancing in our faith, that we're growing in our knowledge of God that we are being obedient to Christ's commands to love and serve each other, and especially those that are in the church. Why do we need to confirm our calling and election? Doesn't God know who belongs to Him and who doesn't? Absolutely He does. God sees into our hearts. And so if we think of those two paths, the wide one that leads to destruction and the narrow one, the hard one that leads to life, God knows which of us are on which road. But guess what? We don't. Nathan, Jason, and I try really hard to be sure that when people become covenant members of Piney Ridge Church that we know that they are truly born again. But guess what? We don't have supernatural vision to see into people's hearts. And guess what? A lot of times people can't even see into their own hearts 
accurately. Our hearts are deceitful, it's desperately wicked. And our vision can be, like it says in verse 9, can be, we can be so nearsighted that we're blind. Think again of those people that, that Jesus tells to depart. They say, Lord, Lord. I mean, they're shocked. They didn't think they'd be in the people that were departing. And so we need to confirm regularly. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. We need to confirm our calling and our election by growing in the fruits of the Spirit, by pursuing God through spiritual disciplines, and by living our lives in active obedience to Christ and His commands to love and serve others. This warning in Hebrews chapter 6 is for all of you, and it's for me. God has put me through the ringer this week, through this passage. If you're not yet trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, this warning is for you. If you've not humbled yourselves before God to receive the free gift of salvation that He offers through faith in His Son, and this is an extension of the warning in Hebrews 4, 7, where he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not reject the Son of God, because there are dire consequences if you do. Rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ that is being preached to you is like ground that soaks up the rain but instead of producing godly fruit, it bears thorns and thistles. Look at verse 8 in our passage. Actually, let's look at 7 and 8. But particularly, let's focus on 8 right now. But if it bears thorns and thistles, talking about the ground, if you look up in verse 7, it says, For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, now go down to 8, but it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. That's your destiny. If you continue to reject the gift of salvation that is freely offered to you through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin and your salvation from the wrath of God, that is your destiny. Heed God's gracious invitation in this warning this morning. If you are one of those people that Jason was talking about last week, if you're what the author of Hebrews is talking about at the end of chapter 5, if you have not been progressing in your walk with God, if you're still a spiritual infant that needs milk rather than growing up into full adulthood in Christ, this warning is for you. Because it's possible that the reason you're not growing is because you're not born again. And if you continue to drift you may harden your heart to such an extent that you will reject Jesus Christ 
completely. And in doing so, you will prove that you never were born again in the first place. And look at verse 6 in our passage. It will be impossible to restore you again to repentance since you are rejecting Jesus just like those people who welcomed him into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and then stood in the crowd on Good Friday and yelled, Crucify him. It's just as if you're crucifying him all over again. And you're treating him with contempt as if he were a lunatic or a liar instead of treating him as he truly is, the Son of God. And your destiny is also the destiny of verse 8. You're near to being cursed and your end is to be burned. So what do you do? What do you do if your spiritual growth has been stunted? If you are drifting around in a sea of immaturity? Well, first of all, let me just... Say, welcome to the club. For many years in my adult life, that was me. And you know, I heard sermons like this preached, and I hated them. And I detested that man on the stage who was preaching sermons like this. But by the grace of God, I stand here before you today... And by the grace of God, he has brought me out of that. And I've been striving with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. And I want to tell you today that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it's the power and the salvation for those who believe. And I'm not ashamed to preach a warning passage like this to you today. So if you hate me, that's okay. I'll wear it. Because as elders in this church, we are called on to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. And when we come in Scripture to a warning passage like this, we are bound by God to preach it. So hear the Word of the Lord today. If you are sitting there now and you're going, I'm not even sure if I'm saved, now here are some things you can do. Okay. First of all, let me tell you, if you have a desire to repent and be saved, you have not reached that point of no return yet. Amen? And so cry out to God and preach to yourself that your only hope of salvation, when you stand before the judgment seat of God on the last day, is to say, I'm trusting in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for my salvation and the righteousness of Christ that has been credited in my account. That's your only hope. So just keep preaching to yourself and affirm that by faith. Then go to your Bibles and read that 2 Peter 1 passage again and again. Memorize it. Internalize it. Ask God, say, God, by your divine power, work in me so that I increase in these things. And then 
make every effort. Prioritize in your life to read the Bible. Prioritize in your life. Plan it. Put it in your schedule to pray. And look for ways to honor God by serving others. Confess your sin to him. Ask him for your forgiveness. And here's one more thing you can do. Talk to somebody. Come talk to one of the pastors. Or find somebody in the church that you trust to speak the truth to you in love. And ask them what they see in your life. Someone that knows you well enough that would be able to to comment on it. Confirm, work to confirm your calling and your election. This warning is for the unbelieving, and it's for the immature Christians, but it is also for those mature Christians who are fully assured of their salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. Not because if you truly are a follower of Christ, not because you might fall away, but because you ought to fear falling away. That ought to be one of your greatest fears, if not your greatest fear, because you know your heart. I know my heart. I know that I am prone to wander. I know that I'm prone to to leave the God I love. And so this warning has really worked on me this week. It needs to be a motivation to spur us on in our walk with God. That's why the warning passages are there. God uses these warning passages to empower his people to persevere. One last thing. Isn't it just like God to drop a gracious word right smack dab in the middle of this dire warning? Verses 4 to 6 and verse 8 are terrifying. Right there in between, sparkling like a daisy, smelling like a rose, is verse 7. Let's read it. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. If you're drinking in the rain of all of God's blessings, if you have been enlightened by the gospel, if you have tasted the heavenly gift, if you have shared in the Holy Spirit, if you have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and by the power of God that is producing fruit in your life, then you know that your calling and election is confirmed. And you will receive the ultimate blessing from God, which is eternal life 
eternal joy-filled life, eternal purpose-fulfilling life in the presence of your holy God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll take this word now and that you will cause us to meditate on it, Through the power of your Holy Spirit, you will transform us and change us more into your image. Lord, I pray that you will do a saving and a sanctifying work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we prepare to come for communion, I want to remind you that communion at Piney Ridge Church is open to everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation and had that faith affirmed in a church by baptism. At Piney Ridge Church, we exit our roads to the left. We come down to the front, one of these tables. If you need gluten-free, that's the far left table. We return to our seats and we take communion together either with family or with friends or feel free to take it by yourself. If you haven't, aren't trusting in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then the meal's not for you, not yet. I pray that it will be one day. I encourage you to pray and ask God to save you. If, you would, if anyone, for any reason, would like to pray with me, I'll be in the back. Or if you'd like to talk about the gospel, or you can fill out a connection card and put it in the offering box, or you can email us this week. We would love to reach out to you. For those of you who will be coming for communion, I urge you, because of the fact that this passage is in the middle of the author's big treatise on the high priest, I urge you this morning to come and take communion grateful for your high priest who walked the difficult road before you, who never once fell away, although he was sorely tempted. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when all of what was about to happen came crashing down on him, and in his humanity, he thought about the pain and the torture, and in his divinity, he thought about the prospect of drinking the cup of the wrath of God down to the dregs intended the wrath of God that was due to his people for their sin. And he didn't fall away. And now he stands as your high priest, sympathetic with what it's like to walk that road, understanding your weaknesses and frailties and offering you a way of escape from temptation. and empowering you by his grace to keep the faith and to stay on a steady course. I encourage you to take the bread that represents his body broken for you and the blood that was and the juice that represents the blood that was spilled for your sins with gratitude in your hearts, praying and asking him to empower you to continue your progressing in your walk with God.
For those of you who stood, you may now come.